The Life of General Belisarius, The Gothic Resurgence in Italy, Part 1. The last time we were in Italy, Belisarius had pretty much put everything down and was called back to deal with the Persians. Unfortunately, after he left, Justinian rashly appointed in 540 A.D. to to vacate the command of 11 generals of equal rank, neither respected by the soldiers nor united amongst themselves, who seemed only to value their high office as affording superior facilities for stealing. The administration of the revenue had been entrusted to Alexander, a crafty scribe who from a slender patrimony had risen by the most nefarious means to the possession of enormous wealth. Deeply skilled in every refinement of chicanery, no pity or remorse ever checked his rapine and from his skill in diminishing the size without altering the appearance of the gold coin, he's commonly known in Constantinople by the byword facilion, or scissors. On his arrival at Ravenna, he found Italy exhausted by the calamities of war, but his consideration was far from restraining his active ingenuity. Heavy taxes were imposed on all classes, and confiscations levied from the estates of the wealthy on the pretext of debts to Theodoric and other Gothic kings. Under this oppressive yoke, they might derive some consolation from the perfect impartiality of Alexander, who defrauded the Byzantine soldiers no less than the Italian subjects. Instead of fixed and regular pay, the money for their sustenance was partly withheld and partly doled out in scanty and uncertain remittances and the veterans found no other reward for their perils than they had encountered, and the wounds they might display than neglect and destitution. According to the strong expression of Procopius, the troops were reduced to beggars. All sense of honor was relaxed, all subordination destroyed. Some forsook their encampments for the pillage of neighboring country, while others in disgust deserted to the enemy. The Italians, groaning beneath the tyranny of those who they had hailed as friends and deliverers, turned an eye of regret to the happy reign of Theodoric, and looked with hope and favor on the reviving strength of the Goths at Pavia. This squadron at first could not muster above a thousand men, but was gradually recruited by some scattered detachments. The royal title was offered to Darius, brave nephew of Vitages, but he considered the ill fortune of his kinsmen as a sufficient motive for his own exclusion, and generously directed the choice of the council to Hildebald whose relationship to the king of Visigothic Spain might acquire for his new subjects a powerful alliance. But base minds can still less forgive a favor than an injury. Hildebald nourished a secret hostility against his benefactor and yielded to the entreaties of his queen, whose hatred was frivolous in its origin and dreadful in its vengeance. She had been deeply incensed at some public occasion by the richer dress and more numerous attendants of the wife of Urias, who had moreover aggravated this offense by her haughty demeanor. Urias fell a victim to the ingratitude of his friend and to the wounded vanity of a woman. But his murder in 541 A.D. aroused the anger of the Goths and soon met with just reward. A soldier named Villus, having been bereaved of his bride by Hildebald, gratified the public resentment by striking off the head of the tyrant when seated at a solemn banquet in the midst of his nobles. The Rugians, a separate tribe who had joined the victorious standards of Theodoric and remained among his subjects, determined the new election in favor of their countryman, Erak. This choice was, of course, unwelcome and displeasing to Tidal, or as the Greeks have termed him, Totila, nephew of the late king, who commanded a detachment at the small town of Treviso. 
and immediately offered to join the Roman standards. A day had already been fixed for the surrender of Treviso when the Goths became sensible that their Rugian monarch was ill-fitted by his talents or by his courage to retrieve their ruined affairs. A secret embassy offered the crown to Totila, and the ambitious youth gladly consented to assume the dangerous honor, provided Erak was dispatched before the time for executing his treaty with the Romans that they should arrive. The usurper was accordingly put to death by his discontented subjects, and the nephew of Hildebald triumphantly entered the palace at Pavia. In the character of Totila, we cannot by any means, as in that of Theodoric, his illustrious predecessor, admire a perfect example of barbarian virtue. His military merit is indeed attested by the confession of his enemies, and still more clearly by the rapid progress of his arms. But his temper was fierce, vindictive and unsparing, and though his policy enjoined clemency to the Italians in hopes of gaining their affection and the liberal treatment of his captives in order to allure them to his service, yet where he had no such object to restrain him, we behold the tyrant unveiled. As an instance of his capricious cruelty, it may be sufficient to mention that one of his favorite officers, having been wounded in battle by a Byzantine commander, who was afterwards taken prisoner, the Gothic monarch suspended his decision during the lingering illness of his friend and finding that it ended in death, commanded the immediate execution of this captive. A more generous enemy would have acknowledged that the Byzantines had only done his duty in his conflict and that all events his guilt could never depend on accident whether or not the wounded had been inflicted proved ultimately fatal. On the first occasion, when the name of Totila appears in history, we find him as a traitor to his countrymen, ready to sacrifice their cause to the gratification of his private animosity, and the sequel of the narrative that will be seen that his conduct, his passion, frequently triumphed over his interests. Yet in some respects we may applaud his character. His promises were sacred and inviolable. The terms of his stipulations and his adversaries were always observed with fidelity and the discipline of the victorious army was strictly established and enforced. By, by his offers he attracted, by his justice he retained, deserters from the Byzantine army and captives who he had made in battle who were often tempted to renounce the thankless service of Justinian. No sooner had he been chosen king by his countrymen than he justified their choice by the vigor of the government. He led his forces, now augmented to 5,000 soldiers, through Liguria, and seemed to have reduced several important cities, especially Verona. Meanwhile, the Byzantine general simply remained at Ravenna, tranquil spectators of these conquests, until finally being upbraided by the emperor who awakened their dormant courage. So we have this situation where the Byzantine commanders are doing nothing, the gentleman in charge of the finances is taking everybody to the cleaners, and the Goths, after multiple attempts to re reunify under somebody, have a leader that's beginning to move forward. So we'll see what happens in our next installment of this early period of the resurgence of the Goths in Italy. Now the sources for this, the Wars of Justinian by Procopius, Short History of Byzantium by Norwich, Byzantine Art of War by Decker, Byzantine armies 324 to 1453 by Turnbull and the life of Belisarius by Mahome. 
So I hope you enjoyed that. And as always, don't forget to come by the website, summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise. And if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.